healing crusade and how awesome you guys did. It was beautiful. You guys certainly rocked it out for Jesus. Watching uh, Adolfo hop on Birdo's back and run around the church, that was just priceless. Priceless. And then all of your guys' passion for worship and the Lord, and we saw signs and wonders. Just a little bit down on the mains, brother. Thank you. Always just kind of remember that after worship. You don't have to change anything back there except the mains. It will come in hot. And to see your guys' passion for God and and testimony time and the, the dramas and human videos, I know that you guys really poured yourself into that weekend and were encouraged. Did you guys just feel the the Lord come and bless you? Were you guys blessed? Amen. Were you more blessed than as you're affirming you're blessed? How many of you were blessed? Amen. Did you did you really feel that it was worth the work? The effort, all the flyering, coming early, staying late, and then just pouring yourself out. I felt it was worth it. I felt it was also a slap to the devil to show that during Halloween weekend, you know, this big thing for our society, our culture, and we just took it head on, and this place was full. And it was double, triple the amount we had last year. And so I just hear the Lord saying, you know, build the wells and the water will come, or dig the wells, rather, and the water will come. And, and you know, services and times like that are just digging wells, like the ancient people, uh, Abraham, would dig a well. That's where the water would come from. And, uh, you know, then the, the children would come after them and dig the well. And sometimes the enemies would come and put sand in the well, and they would have to re-dig the well, and the water would come up. And I, I believe that when we take weekends like that and we say, okay, this is going to be our habit, this is going to be our tradition for a season, Thanksgiving, I mean a Halloween weekend, we're going to have Shikaboomba healing deliverance services that God starts to send the, the Holy Ghost, and the more we go, the more it comes. And I just think that one year after upon another, that this could become something really, you know, to catch the attention of the city. You know, it could really show the church that there's other options than dressing your children up like Moses and giving them candy and, uh, you know, pin the tail on the, the donkey of Balaam, you know. I mean, it can, it can really become a lot more than that. We can tell people that, hey, you really, you, you really don't have to do more than that. If you just ask Jesus to come, people get healed and set free. And then you can go to the haunted house and ask somebody, would you rather be scared and, and, and have a little demon with blood? whatever jump out of the graveyard or would you rather have your mom who's dying of cancer healed you know would you rather get off drugs or would you rather you know go over here and bob for apples okay and so i just want to encourage you that you did the right thing that god showed up and of course there's always more that can be done i mean there was a young man that you had brought from ohio park that was so glad that you finally got to come some visitors and he was in a wheelchair he didn't get up okay well, that's part of what we learn is that sometimes our prayers don't get answered. But we learn to pray and fast more and to seek God more and to keep praying for those to get up out of a wheelchair. Amen? Praise God. Turn with me in Zechariah to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, today's message is small beginnings. Now, generally, when I come and preach to you guys, it's nothing but the Word. It's Scripture upon Scripture. Today, it's going to be a little bit more of stories. I want to encourage you from this passage. Of course, we're reading the Bible, and I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture. Uh, but I really want you to hear practical things today that came into my heart when I was going through this passage. Let's read the passage. It's, it's 
quite short, and then I will give you some background and give you some understanding, and we'll get into the message. Verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. As a man is wakened from his sleep, he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the light. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountains? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of this lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold and oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Somebody say, Do not despise small beginnings. Now say it like you're up and from this point on speak with passion in this chapel. Amen? Say it. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Amen. Now I want you to see the context of this wonderful passage. Chapter 4 is describing what's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. What had happened was they were in captivity to Babylon. And when Babylon came and invaded them some 70 years prior, their temple, the temple of Solomon, was destroyed. All of the golden articles were pawned for money, and they were melted down and taken. They were plunged, uh, racked, and uh, sieged, and, and they were just left empty in ruins. The city of Jerusalem and the temple was gone. Are you guys understanding this? Some 70 years later, they are in Babylon, they are in captivity, and Daniel begins to get the word from Jeremiah, who preceded the captivity. He begins to research Jeremiah's word and finds out, hey, we're only going to be here seven years, we better get ready to go back. And so Daniel begins to start stirring the people, and the people start to get stirred, and then begin to come back. Now, when you want to read the story of coming back, you need to go to Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the real key player, though, is Ezra, and Ezra begins to go to the king and say, can I come back? And Darius and the different kings uh, begin to allow him to come back and work in the land of Israel. Now go to Ezra chapter 4, and you'll see what's going on right here, because during the time of the building of the temple, there came some discouragement from the surrounding nations who wanted to see Israel remain a ghetto. They did not want to see Israel prosper. Amen? You know, there's a lot of people who don't want the people of God to prosper. You're going to see that in life. That when we prosper, they get jealous. 
And you, and you see this in the attitudes of the people when it comes to us having money. They want us to be broke. They want our churches to have uh, the paint falling off the wall, the roof with holes in it. And they want the mall to be pristine. They want Saks Fifth Avenue to be beautiful. But they want the church to be broke, busted, and disgusted. And they have a problem with us having wealth. And that is not just because of televangelists and their schemes and, and them deceiving people and now people have a hard heart. No, this has always been the deal. As you're about ready to learn in uh, Ezra chapter 4, as they're coming back to build this temple, people start hating on them. Somebody say, don't hate, but celebrate. Amen. Look at Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, verse 1, heard that the exile were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, the story behind this is, Ezra is the, um, the, the one who is in touch with the king. He has favor. He is uh, also working with Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel is the type of king that they set up, which would be like a governor. Now, what you see right here is that these people had been uh, put into the land of Israel, but they weren't natives of the land of Israel. From the king of Assyria, when he was messing with the people of Palestine, he shifted all types of nations around. And so here, when the, the Jews are coming back to their homeland, and they're saying, hey, we want our land back, I think, I think it's ours. We want it back now. Uh, they're, they're acting like they're cool with it. They're saying, hey, you know what? We've heard about your God. We've been worshiping your God. And you know what? Can you, can you let us help? And it seems, it seems like maybe they want to be a part of it. And there's times when the world may seem to want to even help the church. I've had people come up to me that aren't saved, and they say, you know what, anytime you need something, come to me. Let me know. You know, I'll give you some money here. Maybe you need a van fixed. Or, you know, I'm a mechanic. You know, and I've had people say that, but their motives are not pure. Either they're just doing it to make themselves feel better, but they don't really want the gospel, or it's just kind of something they're doing for status. They just want to look like they're important. And so we can't get into every heart of these people, but we see what happens, and we can understand that something was wrong with them. Keep going. But Zerubbabel and Joshua, this is another name for Joshua. I'll, I'll, I'll call him by this name, Yeshua. And the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Sirius, the king of the Persians, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Are you all getting this right here? I can give you example after example of when people have come to the church and they said, Hey, can I be a leader? Can I help out? And then we say, You know what? It's not right for you to be a leader now. And then we'll give them a process to be a leader. Then they won't want to do the process. And then the very person who said they wanted to be the leader is now upset, disgruntled, leaves, and now tries to tear down the very thing they said they wanted to help. Hello, somebody. I wish I could name names and keep you here a little while. Get it off my chest. But I won't do that because God's taking it on the cross. Amen. 
And this is exactly what you see, is that people hate on God's work. And so what ended up happening was they wanted to help with the wrong motives, and Zerubbabel knew that. They had no place helping out. That they were somehow trying to manipulate their way into the the Jerusalem and the temple and to the things that God was doing. They were coming with the wrong motives. We don't know all what they are, but we know their heart was wrong because when Zerubbabel said, hey, I don't feel right about you. You may be going at home looking at pornography. I don't feel right about you being a leader. You may be gossiping about us behind our back, really just trying to get more information to take us over. You, you may be manipulating people to go do your own thing. See, Zerubbabel knew as a leader, something didn't feel right about these people. And he had to say, no, you can't have no part of this. And the moment he said that, man, the true colors came out. And you found out that these people were really God-haters. And that these people didn't want to serve God. And they didn't want a temple there. And what happens, though, is that when they attacked and when we get attacked, we can't get discouraged. But what we learn from this is that the people did get discouraged. Instead of saying, you know what, we're going to fight. And we're going to keep going. And we're going to keep building. And you can read all of Ezra for this. And then Nehemiah builds the wall around Jerusalem. Ezra tells the story of the temple and then the wall. Listen, you can learn from this that if you get discouraged, nothing will get done. And it says right here that they hired counselors to work against them. Now go to verse 24. And here's all the arguments. They're trying to go to the king and cause trouble. But I don't have time to read it. I'll go to verse 24. Verse 23 will give you more context. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Arxerxes was read to Rehom and Shishai, the secretary and their associates, they they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The bottom line is these guys caused such a problem and discouraged the people that eventually the work of God had to stop. And what you learn right here is that they could have quit. And that if it wasn't a God thing, they could have just walked away and said, Okay, God, well, you gave us this word. You told us to do this. And we tried. We met opposition. People didn't like us. It didn't work. We tried our best. Let's just call it quits. But now where you learn the role of a prophet, Zechariah comes on the scene. And Zechariah gets the word. And here is the word. Are you all looking at Zechariah chapter 4 now? Go back to Zechariah chapter 4, and he gets the word. And what is the word? Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. After the lights and the candles and all of those different things, which, by the way, that's a reference to Revelations 11, 4, um, about the two witnesses at the end of the day. Uh, we don't have time to talk about all the, the symbolic nature of these different things. I just want this to be a practical message. But go past that and look at what it says in verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. Hello. His hands will also complete it. You see, this is how you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. That's what Zechariah is saying. Hey, guys, I have been sent to you. And they have taken about a 15-year break by the time Zechariah comes around. It's around 586 B.C. They're building 
Check those dates for me. Put the temple up there. Put the Wikipedia article before you get the, uh, the actual picture. I want to make sure I'm giving you the right dates because I have right here that it took 20 years altogether, but I want to give you the exact date, and then I'm going to show you the temple and what it looked like. What you see here is that Zechariah is saying, you know what, I'm going to finish, or God is going to finish the work. Okay, I knew I was wrong. It was between, uh, go up just a little bit. They started it in 516, okay, and uh, it was destroyed. 586 was when it was destroyed. 535 is when they started it. 521, uh, and they stopped it in 535, and then 521 they started it again and finished it in 516. So those are the dates. I wanted to make sure I forgot to write those down. <clears throat> but now put up the temple so they can, they can see the picture. The seven candlesticks we know represent the Spirit of the Lord. And the two witnesses in this picture that you've read, just to give you some fulfillment of the prophecy, is Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Okay, so if you want to know, right here it says in verse uh, 13, or rather verse 12, the two golden pipes, the two olive branches, who are these? These are Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. Those are the two witnesses. Revelations 11.4, who do we believe those witnesses are? We can take our best guess to be Elijah and Enoch because both of these people did not experience death. And so many people believe that they have to come back down in the end times. And these are the final witnesses. They stopped the rain, etc. You guys know the story of Revelations 11. Just watch the Left Behind series with Kirk Cameron. You know, they stopped the rain. They're cool guys. They're preaching in Israel. Okay. This is what the temple looked like when they built it. It didn't have the, the gold like the first temple. It didn't have the grandeur like the first temple of Solomon. Solomon's temple, uh, it, the Bible says in his day that silver was common, okay? And, and, and gold was so plentiful that they overlaid everything with gold. This was more of stone. It was, it was more plain in its look. And they believe that from this time forward, we never had the Ark of the Covenant again. We believe that the Ark of the Covenant, that, that, that chest that had the Ten Commandments, Aaron's bud, and some manna, was hidden by possibly Jeremiah during the invasion of Jerusalem and has not been found since. And if you watch some movies today or some things on historical channels, they have ideas of who may have this. One of the people that claim to have this are the Ethiopian Jews, and there's a whole story of where it went. So the temple had all of the materials, inner, outer court, uh, and most holy place, as you can see here. And all of the articles are there. Those watching by webcast, just go to Wikipedia and put Second Temple of Jerusalem. It's a real easy article to, to get into. Okay, so what is the point here? The point is that they started a project, they were discouraged, years go by, nothing happens, a prophet comes along, says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, you will finish this. Now, I've preached a message already on the power of the Spirit. On not by might, not by power, uh, not by might, not by your power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. I preached a whole message on that, showing that you need to have your dependence on God. And so today, I'm not going to talk to you today about that. What I want to talk to you today about is the day of small beginnings. Look at verse 10. Who despises the day of small things? You see, when you will set out to do things in ministry, you're going to have 
small beginnings. There are going to be times when you are going to do small things. Now this is where today I'm going to give you a little bit more of the stories of my life and just things to encourage you from the text as, as an example of small things that can happen in ministry. When I first started in ministry, you know how it was? It was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My friend and I, taking the money we had from working, I was delivering pizzas, and I don't know what he was doing, working at a grocery store, doing something. We took our money together and went to a food bank, bought groceries, and went out and gave it away every Saturday. We would buy food by the pound. So if I had $70 and I could get one pound of food for 10 cents, we would have hundreds of pounds of food. I think that comes out to 700 pounds, right? Or something. To somebody times 700, uh, I mean, uh, $70 times 10 cents. Is that 700? Yes. 700 pounds of food. And then 1,000 pounds would be $100. And we began to, to take this in grocery bags and give it out. And you know what? It was just him and I. Just two people. Being a part of a church that really didn't care what we did. It was a big church. They didn't give us any money. We told them what we did. Eventually, people started with us, but you know what? how, how it was? It was just him and I. And, and some of you guys know the story because I had lived out in the suburbs. When we decided to go to the inner city, all we did was come to the city. And we thought that people there were poor, and so we're knocking on people's doors. And they're like living in the city. They own their house, the car, and everything. And we're like giving them groceries like, hey, what's up? We're here. And they're like, we don't need this. And then they, they pointed us to the south side, and they were like, that's where you need to go. And then when we got over there, that's when we, when we got scared because we're like, holy moly, this is not where we normally go. It's not where we belong to two white boys from way out here in the suburbs of Fort Wayne. And, and in Fort Wayne, you know, it's kind of a big city. It has an inner city. People die. There's drugs. There's projects. There's Section 8. I mean, it's a piquito, a little bit compared to Chicago, but that's how it started. So the pastor that's preaching to you now, how did he start? Feeding the poor. Wasn't that a small beginning? I'm not talking about looking at it in God's eyes. That's huge, okay? That's what God calls all of us to do. We should never get tired of just serving. I'm not against that. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that's about numbers, but I'm putting it in your head that the things that you will face will be small in the eyes of other people. And just like Zerubbabel, just like then, people wanted to help me out. And people began to hear about it. The pastor's son began to hear about it, and he really got set on fire by that. He really was blessed. It really encouraged him. But people began to hear about it. And I remember one day, I came in a Saturday, and we were so fired up, it was like four of us. So we had a lot of people. And we were like jumping around and praising God. And I had just shared with them, I said, you know what? God is speaking to me. I'm not going to watch movies anymore. I'm not going to listen to secular music anymore. I'm not going to even, you know, read the newspaper. I'm just going to go crazy for God. I'm, I'm just going broke for God. And I want to challenge you. You know, if you're, you know, you're seeing stuff on TV, you shouldn't. You need to get right. And I remember just one of the guys, he came up to me and he said, dude, if you, if you keep doing that, the other, the other people aren't going to come. So he's like, you know, the, the other two of us, we're not going to come. And I remember just looking at Nate and telling Nate, saying, dude, do you want to change it? He didn't want to change it. And I said, this is the way we're going to do it. And I remember driving with this young man, tears coming down his cheeks. He was saying, you know what? You may be able to give up these guys that, that, are, that are my friends and not have them here anymore. He said, but I can't give them up. And that group of people stopped coming. 
And then it went back just to Nate and I every day, just Nate and I. And then the pastor's son would, would come occasionally, and God began to use it. That was a day of small beginnings. And I remember doing ministry and asking people, hey, do you want to come talking to Christians? And, and they wouldn't come. And you know what? I began to develop these little slogans. I would say slogans like this, you can go to church, but we're going to go be the church. Because I would talk to people, and I would say, what do you do for God? Well, I go to church. I go to church. You know, I would talk to this church of about a 1,000 people, and I would talk to my peers. I was 18 years old, and I would say, hey, do you want to go out and help us? No, 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 I just come to church. I said, you can come to church, or you can go be the church. And that's how it started. Then one day, somebody came up to me, and they said, man, an all-night prayer meeting. They said, we are hearing that you're doing these things. And I know you have a great testimony. Will you come and preach? And I had never even preached before. I had only been saved a few months. And some of you came to my house and you saw the videotape. Me with the sport jacket on, hair slicked back like a mob boss, you know, for Jesus. But yet with a southern accent. And yet I grew up in a suburb of Indiana, never spoke with a southern accent. So here you have a mob boss preaching with a southern twang. That was my first message. I mean, my first method. Now, you know what? I didn't even know how to preach. No one had even taught me how to preach. I had just heard preaching. So I go to my Bible. I get a bunch of scriptures. And the message was, if you want it, you got it. That was the message from Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, if you want it, you got it. And that's what I just kept preaching. Do you want it? Do you want it? That's what I kept saying. A day of small beginnings. And you know what the funny part was? Is when I show up, there's four people, so that's kind of small. But then here is the kicker. He says we're going to record it and put it on public access television. So my first time preaching is like preaching to four people in a front row, just like this in a little office building with a camera pointing at me. And so the first time they then put it on the air and people from all of my past are calling me up saying, dude, we're looking for you, man. We can't find you at the party, man. We're wondering where you're at. And then I saw you on TV. What are you doing, man? We see you preaching and you got your hair slicked back. What's wrong with you? That was the first time I preached. That was it. Four people on public access television. Then that same brother had a jail ministry. So the first time I ever preached in front of people was in the jail. It was like another group of four people. I think I have preached to four people more than anybody in the entire world. Like you can put on my gravestone the epitaph, the man who preached the four. He gave it his best. Because you never felt like you were just being preached to by four. I mean, the spit was hitting the wall. My face is turning red. You know, you guys saw some of the video. I mean, just straight up raw passion. It was like putting, you know, like a jet engine on, on like a model airplane. It was like, you know. And so I preached into a jail. And then I enjoy it. And then the all-night prayer meeting, there's these guys that go to a drug rehab. And they come to the program. Uh, to the all-night prayer meeting. And the pastor says, hey, would you like to come preach at the drug rehab? And that was like my second time preaching. Are you guys understanding me? That's how it starts off. That was before I even went to Bible college. It was just, I'm going to go do something for God. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to serve God in this way. And if I have the opportunity to preach, I'll preach. Then going to SUM Bible College. Now, because I had already preached before, I thought that I knew everything. So I thought I could tell the professors what to do. So while I'm in 
the juvenile youth center preaching, I'm using the Proverbs that say a dog returns to his vomit, you know, putting a gold on a woman that has no discretion is like putting it on a pig. And so I'm actually calling them dogs and pigs. And I'm saying all the jewelry you put on, you're just a pig in the mud. And, and, and you're a dog because you know better and you don't do it. And that's why you call each other dogs. And your family teaches you what you do. And you're a litter of dogs. And I was preaching to them like this. Harsh. Harsh. Like that was my word. You are a dog. Repent. So if you think I'm tough now, just imagine back then. And God bless him, Professor Sutherland, an awesome man from the south side. Just gentle man, gentle man, much older than me, you know, much older, in his late 40s, maybe early 50s. On the way home, that, by the way, he interrupted my preaching. He stood up and he told me to sit down. And then he continued to tell them how much God loved them. And he said, let me tell you the other side of the story. God loves you. Let's not have a riot. Let's pray for you. And so I go home that, uh, to the school that day, and that was my first time preaching with them. That was it. That was, that was the grand finale, the grand opening and the grand finale all at once. And then they tell me, you cannot preach like that anymore. And so I start rebelling against them. And I remember Chancellor No, he was coming in with the water bottle, and he was hearing the discussion, and he set the water bottle down, and he said, until you can fill this full of tears, you cannot preach like that. Because what he was saying was, yeah, it might be in the Word of God, but you're not preaching it right with the right heart. And I didn't want that. I couldn't take that. I couldn't take correction. So what did I do? I quit that day. I said, I don't want to go to this school anymore. And I packed up all my things, and I totally see it as like you see like on like Huckleberry Finn, the guy with the little stick on his back, the little red knapsack, and he's walking down the road, and he's wanting everybody to feel sorry for him. You know, like, I'm leaving this place. Nobody likes me. They don't know how to serve God. And I had this whole pity patty party for myself. But then that day, and some of you have heard this story before, but for those listening, that day, I had always said to people, Every day is a good day with Jesus. When they asked me, hey, how are you doing? I'll say every day is a good day with Jesus. And at this point, I had just been barely saved a year. As a matter of fact, it was one year less, uh, one month less than a year. It was October. It was at the end of the month, right towards Halloween. And I was, had all my bags packed. And I said, I was going to a place. And they asked me, hey, how are you doing? You know, what's going on in the south? They always ask you that. And I couldn't even look them in the eye and tell them anything. I was like, oh, I'm fine. And then God told me, he said, you know what? If you quit now, if you give up now... I'm going to walk away from you. If you give up on your ministry, you're not going to have it back in Fort Wayne. God was telling me that his way was the only way I could go. And so that day I called up Brother Anthony. I repented. I said, God, I am just a sinner. Forgive me. I'll learn. And, and Brother Anthony forgave me. And I said, Pastor, just put me in any ministry. I'll do it anyway. And so they had me start washing toilets, cleaning toilets. And Brother George said that he knew that my heart had changed when one day I was cleaning the toilet and he said, how's it going? I said, oh man, it's great. I'm getting all this stuff off. You know, like I had like this like testimony of how well I was doing my job. And he said like, oh, I knew from that moment God was changing you. That was within my first semester of Bible college. Somebody say small beginnings. You see, each one of you are going to face those challenges and many of you are facing them already. You know, your first time preaching, your first ministry, your first opportunity to do something. And you may be seeing the same things that I saw. People said they're going to be with you. They're not with you. People that thought you thought were going to encourage you, they're not encouraging you. And you may think about quitting. You may think like, well, I'm just going to take this semester off. Or maybe Bible college is not for me. Or maybe I don't need to go full time. 
Or maybe I'll just leave the cohort and do independent study by myself somewhere. There's all these options that you may come up with in your mind to do less than what God's asking you to do. But I'm telling you, you're not going to be happy doing that. And if God deals with you the same way He deals with me, I want to tell you something. God's peace is not going to go with you. And you won't have the mark of His power and success in life where you're at. You'll have the mark of death and you'll have a stinky, winky attitude. And when you do ministry, you'll bring other people down with that. Because I look back on that past and I've watched people coming in and out of my life. And you know what? They didn't come back to school. They did leave with their, you know, their nose up at this Bible college. And now I see them. They have the gifts, but they don't have the anointing. And it fools people who don't know the difference. You know, I could preach in an enthusiastic way, tell you things that might encourage you, and you might think that's the anointing, but that doesn't mean the anointing's on my life or that God is affirming my character. And I've seen so many people coming out of Bible college like that. Don't give up what God is doing. Well, from that point on, I just began to serve. I began to come up with other messages, Jesus loves you, stuff like that. And I remember one day we were all in a classroom and Brother George came in. The school at this time was only about, uh, like I said, 15, 20 students. I've always told you guys have probably just as much or more than what I went to. School was only four or five years old at that time. And Brother George came in and he said, I want everybody to put on a piece of paper what your dreams are. And so I put on that piece of paper, my dream is to plant churches. I want to go all over the world, much as what we're doing right now. I just put that down. I, you know, that was always my dream. I was only like 20 years old. Put it right down. 32 now. Come on. God's making it happen. And then he, he read them, and he came back, and he said, Joe and Juan, I want you to be the leaders of this new youth ministry we're going to start. It's going to call, be called Win Warriors Dream. WWD, Win Warriors Dream. He said, I did this in Baton Rouge. It reached tons of inner city youth. You're going to start it. You and Juan Gonzalez are going to co-lead it. And then he pointed out, Six to eight people. He said, these people are going to be on your team, and they're going to work with you. And then he said to the class, he said, now listen, how I decided this is was God told me to ask you, what is your vision? And whatever people put down things with youth and Holy Ghost and, and just changing youth and all of that, they were the leaders, and they were the ones that were supposed to be a part of this new thing we're starting. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, hold on, where do we misconnect here? I didn't put anything about youth on my paper. I didn't put one thing about youth. As a matter of fact, at that time, I didn't listen to Christian hip-hop. I wore suits on Wednesday midweek services. I was on a whole nother tip. I thought I was going from Bible college to Jimmy Swagger, Benny Hinn. There was no in-between. There was no youth. There was no children's ministry. It was just Billy Graham. I'm going to go be next Billy Graham. That was it in my head. And he's telling me, you're going to know. And this is what he, I said, where, where did we miss it? And he said, God told me. Specifically, you're in it. And I said, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know. I mean, because I understood, because we were witnessing in the Mary Poppins projects, and I understood what that was going to be. It was going to be us having lonely old nights in the middle of projects, all by ourselves, trying to convince inner city people who did not even like us to begin with to serve Jesus and to forsake everything they've ever known their entire existence. And that was what I was supposed to be. See, at that moment... It was now changing my dream of what I thought I was going to do and how I thought I was going to get there. See, the day of small beginnings. 
And so I went back and prayed, and, and that same God who spoke to me that day in the gas station told me to come to SU, that same God said, you need to do this. And I mean, we used to have meetings where we would sit and discuss whether or not we would even allow Christian hip-hop to be played. That is how behind we were. Now, in a lot of ways, our church has kind of come back to that. We don't do all those things like we used to. But listen, we were all so fresh at youth ministry, we didn't know what they liked. We, we had either just got saved, and some of our team had just got saved, and they didn't know how to preach and do anything for God, and all they were was worldly, or they were people like myself who were just older, like 20, and not youth anymore, and just didn't want anything to do with it, because it reminded them of their past. And so we would have meetings and decide. And so we came up with this idea. And it's really the help of Brother George. Brother George, I should say, he came up with the idea. He took control and he said, you guys are going to take out this little truck that has a stage that folds over and you're going to go to the high schools and you're going to preach. You're going to go to the parks and then we're going to tell people we're going to have a grand opening at this one place called the Riverboat Hallelujah. That was what it was called. And you're going to fill the place up. And so you got us, I mean, me, someone from Fort Wayne, Indiana, from the suburbs, going to the project, standing on top of this stage, all African-American, no diversity, not one bit of diversity. Like maybe you would find like that one Latino walking by. But then they just, they fit in with the um, African-American community. You just thought it was just all the same. Like Jeffrey. I never thought of Jeffrey like how I think of like my gente now. You understand? You've met Jeffrey. Jeffrey just to me was just African-American because that's everybody talking the same, they ate the same, they dressed the same, everything was the same. You understand? And so here we are just standing up in the middle of parks. And sometimes we would have all of these things and only like two people would come, three people would come. Well, we had our grand opening, it was big. And then Juan was getting married. And what happened was Juan could not do both, get married and finish out the semester, so he had to quit. And so I walk up to Brother George and I'm like, okay, we did good. Time to call it quits. We're done. Here's the co-founder. He can't make it anymore. And by the way, Juan was like the youth guy. I would just come up and be like, you're all going to hell and you need Jesus. And then I would hand the mic to, to Juan. He'd be like, que paso? And he would make them all laugh and do Spanish humor with them and do little dances on stage. And then they're like, we love Juan. We don't like Juan. We hate Juan. We love Juan. And so when Juan was done, I was just like, okay, we're done. Tip my hat. Thank you very much. We tried. We came to we came to the projects. We were here for uh, you know basically about four to six months. We're done. Juan's out. I'm I'm gone. And then Brother George sits me down and says, "So are you ready?" Yeah, I'm, I said, "Yeah, I'm ready. Just hang it up." He said, "No, you're going to lead it. You're the only one now. You're you're going to lead it. You're going to do all the preaching. You're going to do all the outreaches. You're the face now of Win Warriors Dream. You're it." And I said to myself, "You have got to be kidding me." And then this is what he said. And not only did Juan quit, he said, but we're not going to be able to give you any more finances for this. And you're going to have to start on your own and build it up again. And not only that, but we can't give you as many students because they're getting scared and they think you're crazy. So we're only going to give you half as many students to help you. So it went from a small beginning to even more of a smaller, smaller, minuscule, you know, just minute, you know, microscopic beginning. And then the rainy season comes in New Orleans, and I, I am sitting here by myself in a house that I am now, because Juan left his apartment. I graduated, by the way. This was right at graduation because he couldn't make it. He stopped. The summer passes. We're just kind of taking trips. You know, I've graduated. The school year's over. It's supposed to be over. I'm done. Remember, I'm tipping my hat. And, and he says, do it. So I'm a graduate now. Just to catch you up. 
And Juan leaves his ghetto, fabulous house. And guess what's the only place I can afford? Is the ghetto, fabulous house Juan was living. Because Juan's like, I'm going to live with the people. I'm going to be in the community. And so from that point forward, here I am in the middle of New Orleans' inner city, living in a place with roaches, mice. There was, you know how they have the little flaps for dogs to come in and out of your house? There was a little flap for the mouse to come in and out, right in the floor. It was like the owner just said, hey, you just come in here. He would come right up. I actually had to nail down this hole in the floor to stop this rodent from coming in and out of my house. I can see like him coming to that door one day going, what happened? Come on. I'm here. What you ain't locked me out here for? I am so serious. None of the people liked me. None of the people even, you know, we had no more money. We couldn't give away anything. I didn't have one with me. I had like four students. It's the rainy season. And where are we at? We are now in my apartment with like three people. And then to make matters worse... I'm praying about how long should I do this. And God says indefinitely, now start a church here. And guess what day God tells me to start the church? On Mardi Gras Sunday. Mardi Gras Sunday, we start the church. And that means everybody's out doing something for the devil. And so our grand opening wasn't 300 people, wasn't, wasn't this huge thing. Our grand opening was like three people, the guys, like the homeless guy I could drag off the streets that day and bribe him with some beans and rice and some, hey, I'll feed you after service if you come. Three people in my house. Jeffrey was one of them. Thorne was a guy I'd met from off the streets, and that's how we started. You see, I'm trying to encourage you today by my life story similar to what was going on with Zechariah and Zerubbabel. And I could go on and on. Everything in my life, it's, it's like God almost just tests me. It's like I see other people like they start big. It's like God never, ever, ever lets me start that way. Everything, it's like, un piquito. You know, even like with SUM, we're going to start SUM. Two full-time students. Then one drops out. It tries to get the other one to drop out. That's how we started SUM. That, that's how we started here. And Eddie Berto will tell you about that. And praise God that Eddie Berto, the lone soldier, stuck with it. I could keep you here all day, but I want you to see the application. Go with me now to the book of Matthew in closing. You know, most of the time you, ever, you, you will hardly ever be able to count one or two stories you ever hear me preach in a month. Or a story that I share. You know, I normally, it's not my habit. But I want you to go with me to the book of Matthew. And I want you to see what Jesus teaches us when it comes to small beginnings and how he looks at what we're called to do. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Looking at Matthew chapter 13, Jesus himself was rejected by his own people. Look at it. Verse 57, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, chapter 13, verse 57, only in his hometown, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. 
Could you imagine starting a ministry like Jesus, going back to your hometown, saying, hey, let's do this, let's get radical, and nobody believing in you, not even your own relatives, not even the people you grew up with, nobody believes, and actually there is where you do the least amount of miracles? That's what Jesus went through. Jesus started off with small beginnings. Now keep going, I want to show you a few more. Go to the book of Luke. Or rather, go to the book of Mark. Let's, let's look at it from this perspective. Mark chapter 12. One more time, how Jesus went through it and what it was like for him. Verse 1, he began to speak to them a parable. A man dug a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Harvest time came. He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another. This one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He said, I only have one left to send a son whom they loved. And he sent them last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and his inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will then the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become this capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now look at this. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went on their way. Can you imagine this? Jesus is telling a parable of the same exact thing that is happening to him. I have sent you prophets like this man had a vineyard and people sent uh, the king sent people to collect the money. He said, I've sent you prophets to collect the fruit, the harvest, and you keep killing the prophets. He says, my father says, I have my son left. I will send him. And then now instead of the people saying, hey, this is the son we'll respect. Now they're going to kill him. You see, my friends, people will always be around to reject what we do. When you start a ministry, people will always be there to criticize, as they did in the time of Zerubbabel, and even work against you. Think about that. You've gone through Bible college. You've worked hard. The Lord told you to go to this country, let's say Macedonia, and you've wept for them. You've waved the flag of Macedonia, which you guys should get. You've waved it. You've wept for them. And then you get there, and guess what you find out? They don't want you there. And you're thinking in this romantical sense, I'm going to get there, I'm going to see the children of Macedonia, I'm going to pick them up in my arms, I'm going to love them. And then you find out the parents don't even want you to be around their children. No sidewalk Sunday school. No ministry. And then you're thinking that the people's hearts are going to be so soft by you coming there. Oh, the Americans, they've come all this way. They're living among us. They're so humble. And then they hate you and they hate your country. Can you imagine that? You spent your whole life saying, I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a difference. And now imagine, first service, nobody. Second service, nobody. What if you are there for a year and there's nobody? What if you're there for two years? Write down this name, Victor Plymeyer. Victor, V-I-C-T-O-R, Plymeyer, P-L-M-Y-E-R-O-O-R. 
or uh, one of those R's at the end. Plymeyer. He was a missionary from the Assembly of God to Tibet. Went there with his family to win souls. They rejected him for years. No converts. Couldn't even have a service. He traveled around in the middle of winter from one place to another to another just to drink tea with them. He would rejoice and say, yeah, I had somebody to talk to today. Then eventually his wife and daughter die in Tibet. Still no fruit. And he remarries and he keeps working with the people. You see, who despises the day of small beginnings? You see, according to Zechariah, don't do that because God is in those beginnings. Because who is the cornerstone? Who is the capstone? Who is the foundation? It is God. And so you have to make a resolve in your heart today that if you go to a place and when you go there and you experience failure and you experience persecution, you will not quit. That is why I love the cohort model is because right now Adam is like Joe Jr. He, instead of working at Lane Tech with all of these wonderful peers that he used to go to high school with, we've sent him now, now out to the inner city. To a people of a different language, a different tongue, a different dialect. And they look at him like a strange man in a strange place. Have you come here to buy crack? What are you doing here? That's what they said to us when we first came, and I'm sure you probably still get that. You're either coming to buy it, or you're coming to arrest people selling it. Are you undercover? You with the police, Joe? You with the police? But that's what he has to do. And same thing with Sue Ellen starting there in the after school program. And those of you going evangelizing, this is what Jesus went through. This is what they went through building the second temple. Now let me give you just a few more scriptures here, and then we'll close out in prayer. I want you to go with me to um, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter uh, 18. Verse 1, then Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Look at this. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant, my ju- grant me justice avenge against my avenger. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust says, and will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones, who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? You see, it's it's like my story I was telling you. I kept going, even though it wasn't easy. And so that if Jesus were to come... He could say, I found faith on the earth. And I remember Brother George telling me a story when I was talking to him. I was like, man, I thought I was going to preach to more people than five five people. Brother George, I went to Bible college. I, I know how to preach. I can do Bible studies. I thought that this would be a little bit bigger. Okay, I'm not, I, I don't have to have the 100,000 yet, but I just thought it would be a little bit bigger than five people every week. And then he told me this story. He said, one time there was this man pushing this rock. And God said, you know, push this rock. And, and, and he kept pushing it. 
And then he would say to God, what's going on? And, he, and God would say, just keep pushing it. You keep pushing this rock. And then the man would look and he would see no change. And God said, just keep pushing it, son. That's what I told you to do. And then eventually the man says, God, why? Why do you have me pushing this rock? Nothing has changed. And then God says, you have. You've changed. What if God for his glory has you push on a rock for years so that you change? I heard a pastor once say, it takes ten years in a small church, ten years for a Bible college student to finally lose his pride. Ten years. And I think at this point, getting right around that 14-year time of salvation and preaching and teaching for about 13 and a half of it, November 5th, my spirit's a birthday. <laughs> I now understand what that person is talking about, about ten years before you lose the pride and ego you had in Bible college. Because we think when we leave Bible college, it's the day of big beginnings. Here I come. I'm going to start a church. It's going to be huge. I'm going to teach every other person that didn't know what they were doing how to do it now. I'm going to prove that I'm the greatest. I'm going to prove that ministry is easy. Here I am. And then there's five people. And what do you do? And I'm telling you, my friends, I'm, I'm telling you a story from a point of view where I didn't quit. There were friends that graduated Bible college that started churches that only lasted a year. And they quit. Some of them today are still not in ministry. I know one personally so close. I remember watching it go down. I remember him clicking out. I remember the spirit of discouraging sitting on him and and discouragement. I was talking to him. How's it going? Ah, it's not going so good. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. And eventually I said, what's going on? He said, I shut down my church. I said, okay, so are you going to start it up again? I mean, where's where's the vision? What are you doing? No, I'm I'm just going to join this person's church and be be in the band. He used to have a house that he brought in homeless people. He had a three-story house. It was huge. The bottom part was the kitchen and the, and the sanctuary. Upstairs was where the, the people lived, the homeless people. And then upstairs from that was where his wife and family lived. And he had literally 40, 50 people within the first year. But in his mind, it wasn't enough. Within his mind, he wasn't doing enough. Within his mind, it was too small. Within his mind, he began to tell himself, I must have made a mistake. I'm not good enough. Why isn't it growing? Why don't we have more money? Why aren't people really getting saved? Why is it I keep losing people? Why is it there's a turnover rate? What's going on? He said, it must be me. It's too much pressure on my family. I can't do it anymore. That was almost ten years ago. Another story. Glenn will tell you about the pastor he worked with and all the effort they had. And when they went to a small town to start a church, the very people who gave them the church were racist and began to oppose them in the place where they had given them the church. People had given them a church, said, work in this community. And as Glenn and this pastor were working, Glenn was the associate to the pastor. As they worked in that community, the very Christians began to oppress them because the pastor was African. He was, uh, he was really uh, an islander, but he, you know, he was you know, African-American in that sense. And then the pastor, his wife had a miscarriage. He got severely depressed, and then he kept looking at his ministry, and then he began to fail morally, and the church just fell apart. But Glenn kept going. You see, you can't despise the day of small beginnings. In closing now, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. When they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. 
He was near Jerusalem and the people thought that, he, that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said to them, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed of king and then returned. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minuses. Minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Everybody say, very small. Come on, say it again. Very small. In a very small matter, take charge now of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mind has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it, laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did, uh, you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not snow. So, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew did you that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minuses. Sir, they said, he has already ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. You know what? I think God spoke to probably about a thousand pastors in New Orleans. And he said, go out there and reach the poor and the hurting. But they didn't go. And eventually God took that minus. He took that talent. And he said to somebody in Fort Wayne, Indiana, he said, will you take it? You go. It's an honor to be in ministry, my friends. I look now back on those days as it was an honor to serve God there. Why was I in New Orleans in the projects? Why was I in that house? Was it for my own glory? No, it was so that the Lamb who was slain might receive the reward of His suffering. If God takes pleasure in sending one of us out there to stand in front of a mountain and a rock and call it into the sea for ten years and it doesn't move, if that gives Him glory, then we ought to be faithful with it. Because it's a testimony to the world around us that we believe and trust in our God. My friends, so many of you here today are going to face those same exact trials. And when you get there, if you're not there already, some of you might already be there, you are going to ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I trying to build this temple when nobody wants it done? It's not easy and there's not fruit coming. Why am I here? And God's going to say, because I put you there. It's not Brother George putting you there. That's what God told me. It's not Brother George. It's not S-U-M. I put you there. And Galatians says, God will not be mocked. A man reaps whatever he sows. Therefore, do not grow weary 
and well-doing. For if you do not faint, you shall reap a harvest. I love it how one preacher said, how do you know that you're getting close to your harvest when you feel like you're going to faint? Because that's when God is bringing you to the end of who you are so He can begin to move in His power. You see, my friends, as you begin to do ministry, never, ever despise the day of small beginnings. Your five talents, your your ten talents are achieving cities and nations for God. And is He worthy of it? On my worst days, God began to teach me ways to look at it. On my worst days, God would give me the insight. God would speak to me like this and say, if you would have died the day that that gun was pulled on you, and there was a day a gun was pulled on me, He said, if you would have died that day, where would you have gone? And I said, hell. And that just set into my soul. I would have gone to hell. I would have been there for eternity. Pitch blackness, tormented by demons until judgment, then thrown into a bottomless pit that is a lake of fire. For eternity. And then he said to me, Is this not better than that? Is this not better than that? Then you rejoice. And you praise me. And I remember for a year living in that ghetto fabulous house, I didn't even take off my socks and let my toes touch the carpet. And when God began to deal with me with that, the first homeless person that I had sleep in my house, I had a knife under my bed because I was so afraid that he might wig out and I might have to put him down. But within that year, God broke me into a million pieces. And I've never been the same since. How can I love the unlovable? Because I know that God loved me. How can I go through the ministry hardships? How can I go through low turnouts on big outreaches? How can I go through disappointments? Because in all comparison, it's not even comparable to where I would be without Him. And if this is what He asked me to do, it's worth it. Let's stand up together. The question is, when it's your time, and you face that challenge, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because not only are you going to be challenged to quit Bible college, not only is the devil going to tempt you, rather, to quit, but once you think you've graduated here, and you say, man, I am done, praise God, now it's, it's the easy part. You will realize that all of this was just a fraction of 1% of what you're going to face out there. It's a fraction. Eddie Berto gets tickets on the van, running red lights. The guy needs to learn how to stop and learn how to park. He has like $250 in just van tickets right now. But you know what I said to him? You need to learn how to believe God for that. Because if you don't, then you don't get the van. You know how many days I went to my knees and I said, I can't even pay for the food I'm eating. They would send groceries for me to give away to the people in our ministry and I would have to eat the food out of that box. The food bank in New Orleans as I began to work there, that was our groceries. That's where I got food at. My friends, you need to learn how to believe God for that now. Jared and Ellie, you guys going evangelizing, you need to learn how to go evangelizing until. Well, when do we stop? Until. Until when? Until God shows up. So until... He shows up, 
And until a city is won, you don't stop. The Latino ministry, when do you, when do you stop? Never. How long do you keep going? Until, until God shows up. Then it gets a little bit more fun. Now you have 10 people. Now you have 15 people. Well, yeah, it gets a little bit funner. It, it gets exciting. There's, there's victory. You see fruit. But are you willing to stick with it? Same thing with crossover. Same thing with all the other ministries listening to us right now. That's what it takes. I look at you guys right now, and I say, if you want to start all of these ministries, which you guys have started, and you're doing it, and you really want to see the success that you and I are talking about, it may take as much time as it's taken me in every ministry to see success. We turned five years old this March for Metro Praise Chicago. It may take you five years in that community. And you may think to yourself, I don't even want to give five years to that. This is just a practicum. You may think the same thing to yourself. I'm just going to Macedonia. I thought I was going to go to Mexico and plant churches with David Hogan. She knows David Hogan. I thought I was going to graduate and plant churches. And that was a whole other discussion I couldn't get into. It's when I graduated and Brother George said, no, it's yours. You're taking it. And I said, well, man, i got to go. i got this vision. It's much bigger than this. And he said, no, this is where God wants you now. If you leave, trust me, it's not going to be good. And I thank God for that. It was hard. Sometimes I was angry at him when I was, you know, eating red beans and rice every day of my life. I was like, why did I ever listen to him? I'm telling you, you'll feel that. Just like the people of Israel sitting around the foundation of a temple going, you know what, it's too hard, it's impossible. But that's where Zechariah comes in with the Word and says, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. What are mountains in front of Zerubbabel? They will melt. They will melt by God's power. And those stories and those times... I wouldn't trade for anything in the whole world. I have friends that took shortcuts. Because you'll learn that in ministry. I had friends that took shortcuts. That they realized if they stuck around this person, they did this thing, they danced this dance, they sing this tune, then they'll get up the ladder quickly. And they don't have the stories like I have. They don't have the relationships. I have people around this country that consider me closer than their own family. And yet, I had nothing in common with them the day I met them. There were people that I met that were children, that they themselves now are having children. And they consider me to be a father to their children, a grandfather to the children, father to them. Joe from the Cali will be coming, your Lord willing, during Thanksgiving. He's one of them. He just had his first baby. You see, what are you willing to give? What are you willing to give? You have to be willing to lay it all down. And you know what? I'm giving you a perspective that not many people ever hear. And we're going to pray in closing. And today is more, maybe one or more of those messages where you don't shout down the preacher and amen. It's just one of those things where you just never forget it. Because it doesn't have to come with signs and wonders for you to get it. This is the point. Don't give up. One pastor told me like this. He said, we overestimate what we can do in a year 
And we underestimate what God can do in five years. And so, so many of you are thinking, well, this is my first year. This is the first year. You know, this should be happening. I should be doing this. Maybe in your schoolwork, I should be getting A's. And, and you know, all this should be happening. And there should be people at our ministry. And, the, you know, the things that I do should all be successful. Why is it not working? And you're thinking to yourself, I mean, this is my first year. It should happen. What's going on? There's something wrong with me. What's wrong? And you may be thinking that. And there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You are in a fight. It's going to take years. It's going to take years for you to feel confident when you stand and preach. It's going to take years for you to go out into a community and win them over to you. Do you know how many churches that people have seen come and go from the communities that we're in? Do you know how many street preachers have blew in and out of Chicago? Come on. People want to see, are these guys for real? Ohio Park, this after school program. People want to know, are they going to be here for the long haul? I got people who still look at me after being here for five years. And you can tell when I talk to them from Chicago. They're like, oh, you're still doing that? They didn't even believe I would still be doing this. They just thought I would just kind of try it for a little bit and then quit. You see, that's ministry. Jesus was hated in his own hometown. I want you guys to get that in your heart. You're not going to quit. You're not going to quit. You're not going to quit on what God has for you now as a student. You're going to keep fighting. If you fail the class, you're going to learn how not to fail a class anymore. And it may not go from an F to an A. It may go from an F to a C. And you may have to learn how to pull it up. And right now, financially, you may have to learn just to get on your knees and trust God and live off ramen noodles. And in your ministries, you may just have to suck up your pride because I could tell you story after story after story of us going around doing tent crusades, just like how we did a healing crusade on the thing that says healing, healing, healing. And we build this tent that would take hours and we build the tent. And here's the tent. The music is playing. And I'm telling you, like two people show up. And you're preaching your guts out and you spend hours and praying and fasting to come up with this message. There's only two people in front of you. I'm not talking... I've heard people tell stories like that, like they said, well, it happened to me once. I'm not talking once. I'm talking 10, 30, 40, 50 times. Like I told you, I've probably preached to four people more than anybody you have ever met. You would say, Pastor, you're one of the best preachers I know. Pastor, you preach as good as anybody I've ever met. What's going on? I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with what people think about me. It's where God wants me. Never quit. Never give up. When you preach that teen challenge, you preach that teen challenge as if you were preaching to a stadium. When you pray worship here for five people on a Latino, it's just you guys, you pray and you just have so much God and Jesus that, 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 that that's all it is. It's just God and Jesus. It doesn't matter. When you're out there doing the after school program, it doesn't matter if there's two children or 50 children. You love them. You put them in your arms. And it doesn't matter if nobody even shows up that day. You pray for them by name. And you call them out and you say, I will not give up. And before you quit, fill that bottle of water full of tears. And before you quit, stay here for five years. 
Before you say, I'm done with the jail ministry, it has not produced any fruit, you stay with it for five years. Before you say, Ohio Park is not fruitful ground, it's just hard ground, we need to shake the dust off, because that's how we talk in the church. Oh, well, we just got to shake the dust off. Stay there for five years. Weep your heart out for five years, and then let God tell you where to go. You understand what I'm saying, people? Let's pray. Father, give us the ability to rely upon, not our ability, but your Spirit. God, we will not despise the day of small beginnings. Father God, we take encouragement from Zerubbabel, from Joshua, from those, God, who went to build that temple and got discouraged and stopped working for many years because they thought that it didn't matter anymore, that they couldn't get the job done. God, we all can relate to the feeling of wanting to quit, to the feeling of wanting to give up, to the feeling, oh God, that we're not making a difference, that it wasn't how it was planned. We can all relate to that, Lord, and we certainly can relate to people putting us down family members saying, why are you in Bible college? What are you doing here? What are you doing with your life? Father God, we can relate to that. But Lord, we want to know the power more than the discouragement. We want to know Your ability more than our failures.